Uh, we are going to continue our Second Corinthians Bible study tonight. Uh, I want to want you to put a bookmark in chapter three. Uh, we're actually going to begin uh, reading uh, in Jeremiah chapter thirty-one. If you want to open up there, uh, you'll see a slide in a little bit that's going to have a list of scriptures on it that I want everybody that we're going to be turning to. Uh, we're going to be flipping from Old Testament to New Testament at several key scriptures that uh, help explain the the background of this chapter. Uh, so we're going to begin our time in Jeremiah 31. We'll make our way uh, throughout the New Testament, and, and eventually we'll get into 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll spend the rest of our time there. So pretty pretty simple. We, 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 should, uh, we should all figure it out as we, we get started here. But I don't know about y'all, but I've had a great time so far reading, studying, preaching 2 Corinthians. Hopefully you've had a good time hearing, studying these, this, these chapters. I think that uh, maybe you'll agree that these chapters, uh, the first and second chapters uh, of 2 Corinthians, are really some of the most overlooked passages in the Bible. Uh, there, there are obviously wonderful chapters of the Bible that everybody knows and loves, everybody quotes, everybody reads and rereads and talks about and preaches about. Uh, John 3, Romans 8. Y'all, we all know the ones that we, we hear about a lot and we love to talk about. But I, I have to say that Second Corinthians has a lot of great chapters. Uh, there are some more memorable ones than others. Chapter 4 next week, that's a big one. Uh, chapter 12 in a few weeks, that'll be another big one. But I think chapter 1, 2, and, and tonight, 3, they are all up there as super important studies, uh, text to study, and, and passages to read. We've learned a few things uh, about what Christians have uh, to, to, to find and, and, and to search out uh, in Christ. We've, we've learned a few things that maybe you hadn't thought about before, maybe you haven't, you haven't thought about as deep as we have taken it the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've learned how to find purpose in suffering. Uh, we've learned the importance of maintaining our sincerity and integrity, not getting discouraged or distracted. And we've learned uh, about Reflecting God's mercy and God's grace, always being uh, uh, reaffirming our love as God has affirmed his love for us. Uh, none of this is new information to us, but just like it wasn't really new information to the Corinthians. Uh, Paul had taught them uh, during his 18-month uh, uh, planting uh, visit that he stayed there and built the church and planted the church and, 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 and preached to them. Uh, he came back a couple times. We talked about his different correspondence with them last week. Uh, but like most of us do, many of the Corinthians had forgotten these truths that they had been taught again and again. Uh, and we've, all, we've already heard Paul uh, hint at this, uh, but one of the reasons they had forgotten so much that he taught them is because they had entertained and listened to some false teachers. The reason why Paul is having to come at them and reiterating some things that he previously taught them, uh, the reason why he's having to repeat some things is not just because they had bad memories, it's because they had been listening to people that were trying to undo what Paul taught them and trying to uh, undermine what he taught them, discredit what he taught them, which is ultimately what God was teaching them. Um, These false teachers were trying to discredit his ministry, they were uh, trying to tear down what Paul had started and what the, what the Lord had been building through him and had been tending to. Uh, we've alluded to these false teachers a couple of times throughout our, our study so far, but I think it's time that we unpack 
the subject a little more because we won't understand at all what he's talking about in chapter 3 and on on if we don't really get to the bottom of who are these false teachers, who are these opponents of the Apostle Paul, and why were they so dangerous, and why was their message so contrary to what Paul was preaching. So I want to spend a little bit of time up front talking about who these false teachers were. Uh, They, there have always been And there will always be people who seek to undermine and supplant the truth that God is trying to put in the hearts of his people. There has always been an enemy. There will always be an enemy. Uh, there uh, There are people who try to attack the church and they look like enemies. And there are people that try to attack the church and they look just like we do. They are uh, sheep in wolves' clothing. They are masquerading, as the Apostle Paul will tell us in chapter 11. So the enemy comes in all shapes and sizes, all presentations, obvious and also uh, subtly. Yet nonetheless, from the very beginning of the church age, even back to the Garden of Eden, there's always been an enemy. There's always been someone trying to say, God didn't really say that, or did you really hear God say it that way? Maybe you need to hear it another way. There's always been an enemy of God's word, and there is always going to be an alternative to God's word. There's always going to be someone saying, but this is what it really says. This is what he really means. That's just how it is. Uh, But with the Corinthians, God had anointed a messenger called the Apostle Paul. He had appointed him as the evangelist to the Gentiles. The Corinthians and many other churches um, came to Christ through him. And there was a specific group of people that were literally following in Paul's tracks, going to the churches that he literally just walked out of and were trying to tear down what he was building. Because, again, this was the beginning of the church. And the devil was trying to stop it before it even started. Uh, This wasn't just... The New Testament, uh, uh, just a New Testament situation, there's always been tension. But again, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, imagine how tense it was in the very beginning um, as they were just getting it off the ground. Um, and, and the enemy try, was trying to shut the doors before they even made any progress. You can imagine um, there was a lot of, of emotions, a lot of, of concern. Another thing that's very important to think about is in these days, we've learned this recently, there was no Bible like we have it. There was no copy of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. Literally, the New Testament was still being written. So the only Bible they heard was whatever was being preached, uh, especially for the Gentiles. Because, yes, the Jews had the Old Testament. The Gentiles had no Testament. The Gentiles had never held a copy of the Old Testament and weren't about to get a copy of it anytime soon. especially important, there was no Gospels written down or in circulation as they are now. There was no New Testament. So what they were hearing uh, was was contained to the church. So when Paul was preaching one thing and then these opponents came in preaching another thing, you can imagine they were very confused. And you can imagine they were very vulnerable and very uh, sensitive to what was being said from the pulpit. So while we should still not let our guard down in our days, at least we can take the book home with us. At least we can study on our own and make sure that what the preacher said is what the book says. In these days, though, or in those days, um, they didn't have that luxury. So it was very critical that Paul combated these opponents of his as they were trying to undermine his teaching. So you may wonder, who are these false teachers? Or were they all on one team and were they all kind of concentrated together? They actually were. Uh, These opponents of the Apostle Paul, these opponents of the New Testament church were a group referred to as 
Judaizers. Now, you, you might would, would imagine, were they Jewish? Yes, they were Jewish. Uh, but that word Judaizer is specific reminding us not of their race, not of their ethnicity, not that they were of Israel, uh, but this is referring to their Jewish faith or of their connection to Judaism and how they were trying to prevent Christianity from being established separate from Judaism. Now, I, think, I don't think I'm going to say anything that's contrary to what you believe or contrary to what you've been taught, uh, but maybe this will clarify some things that you are unsure about or some things that you're confused about when it comes to the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish religion and our religion, because they are different. They are different, and that's what Paul was trying to make clear, but the Judaizers were trying to muddle the message, if it, as, you, as, as you would uh, imagine uh, their name suggests. So rather than seeing Christianity established as its own brand new thing, of course built on the history of Israel, built on the foundation of Judaism, but still its own thing. Uh, the, the, the Judaizers were trying to make sure that Christianity remained under the umbrella and under the authority of Judaism. Now, we get this word Judaizer from a verse in Galatians. The Apostle Paul said this, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, as in the Jews had been saved and weren't living by the law anymore, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Paul confronted this group of people, and he says, why are you trying to Judaize? That's what that that yellow part there, to live like Jews is one Greek word. It's to Judaize. Why are you trying to Judaize Christians when you know good and well that's not how people are saved? So these opponents of Paul, they were attempting to Judaize Christianity. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that and what the Bible means by that. So the short and sweet explanation is this. Judaism, the Jewish religion, Judaism was a temporary band-aid. It was a placeholder, as in something that was meant to be replaced. Now, are there people who still worship, are, are still parts of Judaism? Yes. The, the, the Jewish religion is alive and well today. Very different than it was in, in the old days. There's no temple. There's no sacrificial system. They don't do it the way the Bible prescribes it. Uh, the Old Testament prescribes it, but they still do it. They've reinterpreted it. But, and again, the Jews would completely disagree with me, but that's okay. They disagreed with Paul, and he was one of them, yet saved the, the, out, out of that religion. Judaism was a temporary band-aid. It was a placeholder given to Israel until something better could come along. It was never, hear me loud and clear, it was never positioned as a remedy for sin or a source of salvation. Nobody got to heaven because they were members of the Jewish religion. Nobody got to heaven because they obeyed the law or kept the sacrificial system. Nobody got to good with God, righteous with God, because of what the Jewish religion offered them. That is very clear and told throughout the Bible. Judaism was a placeholder until something better came along. It was never put forth as a remedy for sin. It was never proclaimed as the source of salvation. Now, I don't think that's too controversial, but sometimes people get a little crossed up with what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. 
So God made a permanent covenant with Israel. So let me, let me distinguish this. God made a permanent covenant with Israel, Abraham, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. God promised Abraham that the people of Israel would be a great nation through which the world would be blessed, a Savior would come through them, and God would always have a, be fond of them and take care of them. That is a permanent covenant. It has never been broken. But... God made a temporary covenant with Israel regarding how to deal with sin and how to manage or minimize the damage of sin. He made that covenant through Moses. So there's a difference between the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with Moses. The covenant with Abraham, it is long-standing. God has promised to take care of Israel. Through Israel came the Savior, and through Israel will come the redemption of the world. That is a, that is a, a long-standing, still-standing, forever-standing covenant. But the Old Covenant, as it's referred to, the Mosaic Covenant, as it's referred to, the Sinai Covenant, as you might hear it called, the, the, this is a temporary covenant that was meant to deal with sin, minimize and manage the damage of sin until something came along that replaced it. And this is where the Jews of Jesus' generation didn't get it right and where many Jews of today's generation don't get it right. We call this temporary covenant the old covenant because it's old and it's been replaced. The old covenant was always insufficient, incomplete, and incapable to save. It was always. It didn't just become this way. It was always insufficient, always incomplete, always incapable to save. It was meant to punctuate sin, make sin very, very, very great. Obviously, it's a problem. And it was meant to point people to a Messiah. So when Jesus did show up, it was meant to say, yeah, he is the only way. Because obviously, you weren't going to get there this old way. But obviously, the Jews didn't interpret it that way. The Jews didn't realize that, even though it was plain in front of them the whole time. And I want to show you that this is all biblical. This is all scriptural. Uh, if you've got your Bibles open to Jeremiah 31, look down at verse 31 through 34. And probably in your Bibles, there's a heading above this passage that says a new covenant. And listen to what God says to Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Look at verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. So not like that covenant. That covenant is old. That covenant didn't work. That covenant is the reason why y'all are in bondage right now. To prove to you it doesn't work. My covenant which they broke... Though I was a husband of them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother to know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So what's the difference in the new covenant and the old covenant? The old covenant didn't forgive sins. The old covenant didn't take care of sin and, and change people from the inside out. The old covenant condemned people, but it didn't change people. Now, 
Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Again, this is going to be very similar. But I want to show you this, that this is all coming. This is literally in the Old, Old Testament. The Old Testament literally says, hey, this ain't working, guys. This isn't going to work. There's something better going to come along. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is, again, God talking through Ezekiel. Jeremiah was talking to the Jews still in Israel. Ezekiel's talking to the Jews in captivity in Babylon. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. Because the old covenant wasn't actually delivering people. It was condemning them but not changing them. So God says, hey, I'm going to do that. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh or a heart of true flesh and better flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So here we have Jeremiah and Ezekiel say the old covenant doesn't work or it's the current covenant that's now the old covenant because there's a new covenant coming. Y'all broke it. God says I've got something better. Don't worry. Now, keep moving with me to Luke 22. Luke 22 to the Lord's Supper celebration Luke 22 verses 19 through 21 if you find your place there this is when Jesus is celebrating the Passover the Passover was the really the cornerstone of the old covenant that God was looking past their sin it wasn't that he was forgiving their sins he was just kicking it down the road he was kicking the can down the road I'll take care of it someday in the future the day in the future was right here right now with Jesus Jesus says you've heard it said of old that this is a celebration of a lamb slain in Egypt but I say to you, this is my blood, this is my body, this is me on the cross going to do what the lamb never could do and what all the different lambs and goats and bulls and sheep couldn't do in the temple. Those things were just pointing to what I could do and what I will do. He says, he took the bread, he gave thanks, this is my body which is given for you, this isn't a lamb from Egypt, this isn't a lamb in the temple, this is me. He took the cup after the supper saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. Underline that. New covenant, which made their eyes pop out of their head. Because they only had one covenant. And it was Moses' covenant. It was Sinai covenant. It was the only covenant. Jesus says it's not the only one anymore. It's old. It's done. There's something new coming. My blood, which is shed for you. So this is going to be a blood, a cup of, the cup of, of Jesus' blood pouring out to change us, to save us from our sins. Now Galatians 3, if you flip over there with me. Galatians 3, verse number. And I'll put this, I have a slide up here if you want to write these down if you didn't get them. Galatians 3, verse 21, 25. The Apostle Paul writing this as he did 2 Corinthians. In Galatians 3, he's explaining to them the old and new, the difference between one and the other. And he says, and he answers the question, I'm not saying that God's law isn't still God's law. I'm not telling you that God's word, the Old Testament, suddenly isn't true anymore. I didn't say that. I'm just saying that, that, that what he said wasn't possible. It wasn't possible for that to be put inside of our hearts and to change us. It condemned us, but there was no correlation. There was no transfer. 
He says, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been given by the law. That if we could have been saved that way, then that would have been great. But it wasn't possible. Nobody was going to obey their way past their sin. Nobody was going to be able to overcome their sinful nature. It was, the truth was there, but there was no way to get, get it to change us. Because sin was too big. But the scriptures all have, have the, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the guardian by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our schoolmaster, our guardian, our, our uh, uh, one translation may say, uh, literally, our caretaker. But every version says schoolmaster, tutor, as in somebody that was just there to watch over us until something better comes. Literally, the, the Greek word means nanny. The Greek word means the person that takes care of you when you're too little to take care of yourselves. To bring us, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith comes, we are no longer under a tutor. And once you pass the test, you don't need the tutor anymore. You don't need the guardian anymore. Okay, last passage and we'll go to Corinthians and we'll settle down and close this message out. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, verse 18 through 22. And I wanted to show you this in front of, in your Bibles because I didn't want you to not walk out, walk out of here and think, well, I, he went too fast and I didn't get to see it. This is, in, this, is, this is important. Hebrews 7, verses 18 through 22. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Now, Paul, the writer here does not mince his words. What does he say the old covenant is? It's weak and unprofitable. If something's unprofitable, that means it's not good for anything, right? For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there, there is the bringing of a better hope there, through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was made a priest without an oath, talking about Jesus, for they have all become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, and he quotes an Old Testament passage, that points to Jesus. Verse 22, by so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. A better covenant. And then, after that, the writer is going to quote the Ezekiel and Jeremiah passages that we just read. And over in 8, verse 13, he says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away if you'll just let it go. But sadly, a lot of people don't want to let it go. And they mix it and they match it and they don't understand it. And that's why we get ourselves confused all these years later. So let me try to bring all this under one, one idea tonight. So we've heard the cohesive consensus is that while the truth of the Old Testament is still true, always will be true there would now be a means of internalizing it and applying it and practicing it and living it out. The message is clear, though, and this is what I want you to hear. Christianity stands on its own nail-scarred feet. We don't need the Old Covenant nor its prescriptions because they didn't work. I'm not saying you don't need the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God's Word. I'm talking about the Old Covenant that says you do this in order to get that. Here's what people here's what people get a little bit confused. No one is advocating that we get rid of the Old Testament. 
No, this is about putting the Old Testament in its proper context, framing it and filtering it through Jesus. You hear me say this all the time. You cannot read the Old Testament without reading it through Jesus. If you read it without Jesus, you will be completely lost. The truth of the Old Testament presents and commands can only be applied to a heart through Jesus. No Old Testament ritual, no Old Testament custom is going to get us there. So this is why we don't rely on what we bring to the altar. And we, we mix this up, don't we? Especially Baptists, especially evangelicals. We mix this stuff up. We match it. We mix and match it like, like we can. And we shouldn't do this. You don't bring anything to God that makes you worthy to him. You don't bring anything to his altar. Not, a, not, a, not an offering, not money, not anything that you've done. You don't make any difference. The day of the week, the way you dress, the way you eat, that does not make you right with God. And it will never never make you right with God. Our status with God is not based on what we do because what we do only sets us against God. There's nothing we can do to please God. Those Old Testament customs were to prove that we couldn't not suggest that we might could. So the Judaizers, they weren't convinced that Judaism needed to be replaced. It offended them to say it needed to be replaced. But they thought Jesus had a lot of good things to say. And they thought, okay, he died for our sins, so he's the ultimate sacrifice. But the burden is still on our shoulders to obey God and stay good with God. It's still based on what we do, when we do it, and how we do it. And religion loves to make it all about us. Because religion just wants to keep us lost. Because religion is not ran by God, it's ran by the devil. And he keeps a lot of people lost through religion. We as a believer, of course, we should obey. But not in order to stay saved, but because we are saved. There's a big difference. Religion relies on human strength, but the other better way relies on God's strength. The Judaizers weren't willing to give up their own contribution because ultimately they were still coveting their own glory and seeking their own pride. And listen, this goes on in the church today more than you would ever imagine and more than anybody would like to admit it. There's a whole lot of this in the church. Look at what I've done. Nobody is going to be standing in heaven one day saying, look at what I've done. Because there's nothing about us that gets us anywhere close to heaven or to God. Nobody on judgment day is going to say, I, I, I. It's going to be all he, he, he. But religion loves to make it about I, doesn't it? And there's something in us that doesn't want to let go of that. Yeah, come on. What is our song as Christians? What is our proclamation? Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Right? Nothing means nothing good have I done. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Listen, Christians, our confession... Our confession is that Jesus is our Savior and we always need Jesus to be saving us. As in, he, is, he saved us, He is saving us, He will always save us. There's nothing that we contribute to this. We are at the mercy of Him doing it for us. Is He making a difference in our lives? Is He changing us? Absolutely. Religion doesn't change anybody. Religion just boasts about things that look holy and look sacred but don't actually mean anything. 
That's why religious people love to talk about the day of the week and the way they dress and what they give because it's external stuff. It looks holy, but there's no substance to it. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ where he is living through you. And you don't get that relationship because you earn it. You get it because you receive it as a gift. And y'all believe that. Y'all know that. But this helps you combat the people that kind of don't know what they're talking about sometimes. That mix and match all this stuff. And listen, I'm not talk, calling, I, I'll, I'll talk about what our denomination does and what our group does, but there's a whole lot of groups out there that do it much worse, right? Shame, shame, shame that, that we've fallen for this. Yeah, we know this. Christianity, Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 28 says, In Him we live and move and have our being, as in nothing uh, apart from Him, we don't have life, we don't have salvation. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Go read the Old Testament. They tried to do stuff apart from God. They were next to him. They were, they were kind of close to him. But there was no connection. There was no personal relationship that only comes through the gift of salvation. These Judaizers were trying to preach another gospel. It sounded similar, but it, it inserted itself alongside Jesus. Religion continues to do this, but time and time again, it is exposed. Plenty of people lift up Jesus in song, but time and time again, they also exalt themselves. That's not Christianity. That's some blended moral religion that has a Jesus sticker on it. Having established that, that these were the opponents that Paul faced, it helps us understand the subject he's already addressed and what he's going to address in the future. They also, they were quick to condemn those who stumbled. They were quick to point fingers at those who didn't look as if they had accomplished great things. They were very hard on Paul because Paul suffered. Paul says, hey, I glory, I glory in my sufferings because it's what Jesus went through. So Paul begins chapter 3 with beating his chest a little bit. He's looking around and seeing if anybody's going to step up and come at him still. In chapter 3, he says, do we, if you want to find your place in 2 Corinthians, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, you hear him come out of the box kind of being defensive, and, and now you know why he's being defensive, because he's being attacked. He says, do we begin, we begin again, excuse me, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do we need, as some others, epistles of condemnation or letters of condemnation? As in, hey, do I have to explain or defend who I am and what I've done? Hasn't the work of Christ proven that? He says, you, and, and he says this about the Corinthians in verse 2, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are a letter of Christ, an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. So he's saying, hey, y'all are proof of what the new covenant does. It changed people from the inside out. These Judaizers, they're worried about the, the way it looks and the style and the traditions and, and the customs that you're following. But they don't, they don't actually bring you something that's going to change your heart. You guys are proof that Christianity works because they have had this truth inscribed on their hearts there's, there's a little detour here that he takes though that I think we need to, to take a minute or two to talk about 
Paul says the Corinthians are testaments to his ministry. They validate the teaching of the gospel. He calls them in verse 2 living letters or living testaments. That, that word epistle is just a fancy word for letter. The epistle of the, to the Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians. He says, y'all are living letters. Y'all are living testaments of God's word. Y'all are proof of the spirit of God that works in the heart as opposed to the law of old. He says, Christians, you are living testaments to those that observe you. And again, back in these days, there was not a Bible like we have a Bible. So it was even more important. Yet it's still just as important for us. Listen, this is not some cute platitude when he says y'all are living copies of God's word. You've heard people say that we might be the only Bible some people read. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Listen, there are many ways to consume the Bible. And it, by all means, everyone is accountable to read the Bible, hear the Bible, and answer with their, for themselves. But we obviously have a commandment to share and to tell the world about Jesus, don't we? Paul says to the, about the Corinthians, you guys are living letters, living epistles. Look at verse 4. We And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul's making it very clear. Hey, I'm not bragging about what I've done. I'm bragging about what God has done through us and in us because he has taken his word and making it alive in our hearts. And isn't that what Jeremiah said it would do? Isn't that what, what Ezekiel said it would do? Absolutely. Verse 6, has made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. The letter or the law, the law kills, it condemns, but the spirit gives life. As we are proof that the new covenant is the only way. We are proof that the spirit of God has now dwelled in the hearts of man. And he is changing lives. And we are commanded to bear witness for the gospel. Our lives are meant to be living testaments, living letters, living proof of what God can do. And by his spirit, there's nothing standing in our way. And there should be nothing standing in front of others when they come in contact with us are you a living letter are you a are you a living copy of God's word to those that are around you that's a powerful heavy question to ask isn't it well it depends on what day of the week it depends on where you find me and what mood I'm in it depends on what if I've been to church recently it depends on if I've read my bible recently there's a lot of stipulations isn't it but we shouldn't work we should always be present and ready to be read by others. We are living letters. Make it very clear. This is not about shouting at people. This isn't about just walking up to somebody and saying, hey, did you know the Bible says this? This is about possessing the light and reflecting the light. And as we live, we use our platform to make God's word known. I'm not saying that other people are not accountable to read it for themselves. They are. No one's going to get to heaven and, and, and you know, get, be given an excuse, right? We're all accountable for ourselves. Yet you and I as Christians, we are accountable to be living letters before others in the world. Romans 10 verse 14 and 15, Paul says, 
How then will they call upon Him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of, of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without somebody preaching? You know what the word preacher means? It's the word to herald. In the old days when the king was coming into town and, and the king that ruled a vast domain in the little village way, way far away from the capital would never ever get to see the king. But once in a while the king would pass by and one of his men would come into town heralding, singing, and shouting, the king is coming. And out of joy and out of excitement he would proclaim to the people in the town, we are about to meet the king. What it means to preach is you joyfully and excitingly and willfully go and tell the world that there is a God who they can know. Because you, yourself, have met him and can take them to him. How can we be living letters to our generation? Three things. Internalize the word. Express it and verbalize it. Verbalize means put it into action. Internalize it as in put it in your heart. That's what Paul says they had been doing. That the word of God was in their heart, inscribed on their heart. Put it in your heart. Repeat it. Talk about it. Let it infiltrate the way you talk and the way you speak. And verbalize it. Put it into action. Now as we wrap up, our attention shifts back to Paul combating these Judaizers who pushed the law of Moses above Jesus. Listen to what he says in verse 7. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look at Moses' face steadily because of the glory of the countenance which, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? And I'll explain this in a moment. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, as in the law condemned, he says if the ministry that didn't help anybody was glorious, the ministry of righteousness exceeds with much more glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because the glory that excels. So Paul's saying, old compared to new, the new is much better because the new is actually changing lives. For if what was passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now Paul is referring to how Moses was said to have witnessed the glory of God on Mount Sinai. You know the story. God says, Moses, they can't, the people can't come up here. Only you. If they come, they'll die but I've chosen you. So Moses says, y'all back away. Don't touch the mountain. Don't touch it. Don't even look up here. So a, a, a cloud descends upon the, the summit of Mount Sinai and Moses goes up the mountain and it was so bright and so brilliant, people could not even look toward the top. But Moses himself was still in the fog. It says Moses was in the cloud so he, he, he could hear God and it was trembling to be in his presence, but he hadn't seen him. So Moses at one point says, God, can I see you? Can I see your glory? Because I'm in this fog, and man, it feels great, but I want to see who I'm talking to. And God says, wouldn't you love that? It's more complicated, Moses. But here's what I'll do. When my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you'll get to see my back. The Hebrew for back is literally the, the phrase there is the undesirable or the unbecoming or the side that doesn't really show you anything. God, Moses, I'll let you see my backside, but you can't see my face. You know what that means? The old covenant. 
the old covenant, the best it ever got was the backside, the dimly lit, covered glory of God. Now that's better than nothing. But it didn't get anybody closer. It just showed people how far away they were. That's what religion does. Some people love that. Some people love going to church and just feeling like, oh, God is way over there. I'll never get there. But you know what? I kind of feel good about feeling bad. You know what I mean? Some churches, their entire system is all about guilt. Man, I feel guilty, but I guess I should. But at least somebody else is up there being holy for me and telling me I'm saved or telling me I'm forgiven and pronouncing me forgiven from some pulpit. But hey, I'm just here, lowly me. I'm just hanging on. That's not Christianity. That's religion. And it's big and powerful, but it doesn't do anything for you. Now think about the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus goes on the mountain. And he shines like a radiant star, the Bible says. Peter's up there with him. And Peter is, the Bible says he was sleepy. And Peter starts rubbing his eyes and he says, Jesus, what's going on? You're bright like a star. And then he sees Moses and Elijah. And then Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a big deal. Because Moses is the guy and Elijah is the next guy. So Jesus, you must be somewhat on their level. Maybe you're number three because we know Moses is the best and Elijah is the second best because he's the prophet and Moses is the lawgiver. Jesus, are you, are you kind of close to them? And, and he wants to build three tabernacles, three tents, three places to honor these three men. And God sees Peter fumbling his words and fumbling the ball and says, hey, Peter, let me help you out. He was still speaking when, he behold, when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As in Moses and Elijah were there to say, Hey, we've done our jobs. Listen to him. Moses was there to say, hey, I only got to see the backside of it. Elijah, I, I called fire down, but I didn't get to go up. These guys were pointing the finger to Peter and James and John saying, y'all, this is the new and better way. And God says, listen to him. Because he's the one that can save you. Now listen how Paul wraps this up. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. As in Moses wore the veil, yes, because it was bright, but also, the Bible says, because it was fading away. And he didn't want the people of Israel to to realize that he couldn't contain it. He wore the veil to make it look like, oh, he's just keeping us from getting blinded. But really, he's kind of concealing the fact that he's not really got to see the whole thing. Their minds are blinded. For until the day that the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. But to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when the one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We all, with unveiled faces, this is so powerful, with unveiled faces, beholding as in the mirror of the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So what is he saying? 
There is now no separation between God and those in Christ. Christ is the full manifestation of God in us. That's the greatest contrast between religion and Christianity you'll find in the Bible. Religion always positions us on the outside looking in. There's a veil over our faces. We get a little bit of a glimpse of it, but nothing really gets in our hearts. There's no relationship there. In Christ, the Word of God is alive in our hearts. His revelation is within us. We're being transformed, and we get to realize His presence and power in our lives. There's no way to experience this apart from a relationship with Jesus. You don't watch this from afar. You don't look at somebody doing it for you with, you know, wearing a great robe and talking in great speeches of words. They don't, you don't vicariously get it. You get it personally by looking on the glory of God through the person of Jesus. Jesus is not a label. He's not a lesson. He's the living presence of God in our lives. Paul says we have unveiled faces. We get to soak it in and we get to have it all in our hearts and get to live it all to the fullest. Isn't that amazing what we have as Christians? Maybe you don't realize what you actually have access to. Christianity is often preached as this, oh, it's just a little bit of religion to get you by. It's something way more than that, right? It's a radical transformation of your life from the inside out. The question I gotta, that you might be asking, and maybe the question is for you, maybe it still feels like there's a veil on your heart, a veil over your face. And, and maybe that's because you've never fully trusted in Jesus. Maybe you, you've never listened to him with your whole heart. You just keep him on a shelf. You keep him in a pulpit. You keep him somewhere way far away from you because that's the way you've been taught it to be. You don't have to stay that way. The simple truth is if you behold his glory, he will transform your heart. His word alive in us, we then get to live for him. There's nothing holding the fullness of God back from you. Religion will hold it back. Your fear and your sin will hold it back. But if you've come to Jesus and you've put your faith in Jesus, listen to what Paul said in that last passage. We are bold and we have full confidence. Our faces are unveiled and we have the glory of God over us, on us, within us, living through us. Church, I think Christians ought to walk with a little bit more boldness, a little bit more of a story to tell, shouldn't we? Because Christianity is not just a sticker that we wear, not a card in our pockets. It's the glory of God in our hearts. And people ought to be able to tell that it's all over us. You can't have it if you'll just trust in Jesus. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the great and awesome word that you've given us tonight. We love your word and we're so thankful that it speaks power and truth into our lives. Lord, thank you that we, are, that we don't have to remain with veiled faces. We don't have to remain uh, hidden from the truth. We don't have to stand far away from you. You've brought us right to the side of your Father. Lord, thank you that you've saved us from religion. And you've put the glory of God in our hearts. Thank you for the good news. And may we not settle for anything less than Jesus and his righteousness. We ask this in his name. Amen.